Brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, our Lord, someone once said, with respect to the preaching of the gospel, with respect to the presentation of the good news, the way that churches speak of it, maybe from the pulpit, but equally, I would uh, suggest in, in an evangelistic context, from door to door, as you're talking to people on the street, that sort of thing, uh, when the church presents the gospel, if, if people don't respond with, with this sort of thought, a thought that says, if you're telling what you're, if what you're saying is true, then what's stopping me from sinning? Then what's stopping me from, from never once living for the Lord, for, for living only for self? If that's not a response you get from the gospel, you're not telling it right. Because the gospel is of such free grace, of such remarkable mercy and love, of such undeserved faithfulness from God, that there is nothing we can do, not a, an absolute element of any act that we can add to the work of Jesus Christ. We are saved perfectly and powerfully, having been redeemed from the sins we've committed, the sins we are committing, and the sins we will commit, being perfectly saved so that we need never fear any trial, any temptation, any trouble in this life. God's grace is so sufficiently and remarkably powerful that we are safe in the arms of Jesus. And if somebody doesn't think, well, if that's true, if we're that saved, then what's to stop me from living in sin? That's exactly the response that the Apostle Paul received. Because at the end of chapter 5, Paul has described the enormous grace and glory of God, especially in the verses 12 through 21. And in verses 18 and following, he says this in chapter 5, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where sin increased, says Paul, grace increased all the more. Where people failed God's love and endured forever. Where where we rebelled against God, His mercy washed us clean. You can't outrun the grace of God. You can't exceed the love of God. You can't do anything that would that would bring you to the limits of God's love for you or mercy towards you. And you can understand then why, in anticipation of, of, of this question, Paul writes in the, in the opening verses of our text, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? See, Paul is, is a mature preacher in this letter. He's writing this, uh, this grand opus, this grand declaration of the gospel after many many years of ministry and after having heard all of the questions people raise when they hear the good news if you read the book of romans you'll you'll note repeatedly these rhetorical questions and they are there because paul knows his readers knows his hearers are going to ask it because he's heard it hundreds of times before when he says that where sin increased grace increased all the more People immediately say, Paul, if you're telling the truth, then what's to stop me from sinning? 
And so he says, if that's what you're going to say, let me answer the question. Indeed, that's the point of all of what follows in our text in the verses 2 through 14. Paul answers this question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And his answer is given in verse 2 and then explained in the verses 3 through 14. The answer is, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul says, what you're asking is impossible. We should be impressed by that in the opening verses of this text. Shall we sin if, if we're forgiven, if there is no end of God's grace, if His love endures forever, then what's to stop me from failing? What's to stop me from faltering? What's to stop me from living in sin? It's a profoundly vital question. It's one that, that the church wrestles with repeatedly. Let's not miss that. Let's not mistake that. There are people, even within our own midst, that fall into sin, that willingly and and zealously pursue sin. And then when they're called to repentance, they they say, but I'm forgiven. But I'm forgiven. I've I've asked God for forgiveness. And what can you do? How can you? You can't stop me then. Even if I continue in this sin, I'm saved. They are sinning that grace may abound. But Paul says that's impossible. That is not at all. No one who is saved continues in sin. Oh yes, they sin, but they don't continue in sin. I think of it in terms of of a trip to to the city of Toronto. To do that, you have to get on the QE and you have to travel in a certain direction. Now imagine that on the way there, you realize you've forgotten something, that you've left something at home that you need, or that you no longer need to go to that meeting or that event, whatever, and you turn around and now you're going the other way down the QEW. Now you're going in the opposite direction. That is how completely different the believer is to the unbeliever. Oh yes, they make similar mistakes at times, they do similar things at times, but they are traveling in profoundly different directions. And Paul says it is impossible for sin, for saints rather, for those who are redeemed to continue in sin. And you say, wait a second. How can Paul say that? I know people who continue in sin. I know Christians who continue in sin. How can that be possible? I have proof, Paul, that you're wrong. Paul says, well, I have proof that I'm right. Baptism, says Paul. Baptism is the proof that I'm right. That's what he goes in the first place to say. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism, says Paul, is a picture, a promise even, of our union with the crucified Christ. Those are the two important things that we need to draw out of this first point of Paul's in the verses 3 and 4. We are baptized into Jesus, which means two things. We are united to Him, and we are united to the crucified Jesus. Now again, baptism doesn't unite us to Jesus. Baptism's a sign. It's a seal of what is true. But what baptism signifies and seals is that we are united to Jesus. And that's a 
a profoundly remarkable word from God to everyone who, in their time, receives the water of baptism. That is indeed the most precious, the most powerful word we'll ever hear in all of our lives. We don't always think of it that way. Sometimes baptism is for us just a a, a mere custom, a thing that we do as people, as church. But it is the most comforting, the most encouraging word that you hear in your life. To understand why that is, just consider that that by nature we're all born sinners. Now that doesn't mean that we're terrible, awful, wicked, and the worst sort of folk around, but it does mean that from the soil of our, even our infant child hearts, from that soil in our hearts, are going to grow all kinds of, of weeds. Big ones and little ones, ugly ones, poisonous ones, even ones we don't mind or think are too bad. The simple point is that we are born sinners and because that's our identity, because that's who we are, we are going to live that way. We are going to act as a consequence of who we are. That's the way things go. Who you are determines how you live. That's why lions roar or why dolphins die. Or why stars twinkle. That's what they are. Stars twinkle because they're stars. Dolphins dive because they're dolphins. And lions roar because they're lions. Even, as rather significantly, just because you roar doesn't make you a lion. And just because you dive doesn't make you a dolphin. And just because you twinkle doesn't make you a star. What we do does not make who we are. Who we are makes what we do. If you're a sinner, you sin. But what happens then if you're united to Christ? What happens when you are no longer a son or daughter of Adam, but remarkably and wonderfully, a child of God, Not for anything you've done, because you can't do anything to earn that blessing. By nature, we deserve judgment, wrath, and condemnation from God because we're in the family of Adam, because we're united to him. We're his children, the sinner Adam, the rebellious Adam, the Adam who rejected God. That's who we are by nature. And you can't change that. You can't leave your family by choice. You can't change who you are just because you change your name or just because you move out of somebody's house or or just because you go to the other side of the world. You are who you are. Only God can draw you out of that dark family, that family of destruction, into the family of love and life and joy. When you are born, you are a dead branch producing nothing, lifeless and gray, brittle and lying on the lawn after a windstorm. But what happens then when Jesus comes and captures you and says, you belong to me and I'm going to give you life and you're united to the living, crucified Savior whose death to sin was definitive and perfect. What an encouragement it is for us to know that we are united to the crucified Savior. 
Sit there for a moment and let that truth work its way into your heart. And, and let it work into your heart in this place of sanctuary, this quiet place of worship, because outside of these walls, there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of lying going on. Our world, the culture in which we live, lies to us all the time. Indeed, listen to the many, many ways that our enemies try to shift us off of this wonderful grace of God in Jesus Christ. Telling us not to define ourselves in relation to Jesus. You shouldn't think of yourself as united to Christ. You should think of yourself in terms of your sexuality. Or in terms of your financial position. Or in terms of your academics. Or in terms of your activities. Meaning that I'm a middle-class, heterosexual minister with a master's degree in theology. That's who I am, apparently, according to the world. Each one of those things important. Each one of those things to, to be defended. And no one may speak against them. No one may deny the factuality of these truths. That's what the world keeps telling us. Think of yourself in terms of your looks, in terms of your material wealth, in terms of your successes. That's who you are. But do any of those truths ultimately, eternally, provide any significance or inclusion within the company of the redeemed? Is the company of the redeemed, the successful, the smart, the powerful, the politically connected? I can assure you, it is not. Beautiful people do not obtain greater value in the company of God's redeemed people. People that struggle with being able to read are not less than those people in God's company that can speak Latin. Athletes in the church are not to be preferred to nerds, none of those qualifications that are so important to the world matter within the church. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We heard that too recently, didn't we? But those who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's our identity. That's what the baptismal font declares every time the water is poured out. And that is so profoundly true, especially when the lies of the serpent are whispered into our ears. And two of the serpent's most insidious lies are these, that you are not worthy and that there's nothing you can do about it. Both of those lies from the serpent are meant to lead us to despair and to give up on the faith. And they are effective. The serpent says you are unworthy. You're not good enough. No one can love you. If people knew the truth of who you are, if they knew how ugly your sin is, they would give you no time of day. They would not cross the street to speak to you. And, and we think that in part because that can sometimes happen, right? People can be mean and judgmental also in the church. 
And we can identify people in ways that are less consistent with our confession than they should be. We can, in the church, treat people like mere objects. We can dismiss people as unworthy. We can insist that the qualifications the world values are the qualifications the church should value. But the truth is, the church ought to be a place. And it is so very often just such a place where all receive grace and are welcome and are supported and encouraged. Because this is the place where God's word and grace speaks a definitive truth. Where the voice of God counters the lies of the evil one. And when he says again, against the words of the serpent, even against those who parrot his lies, that this one, with all of their flaws and failings, with all of their mistakes and foolishness, this one is a child of mine and is united to the crucified Savior, and so is washed clean, forgiven, and restored to to a place within my company, no longer under the destructiveness of their sin. Her debt is paid, says the Lord. He is free, says our God. And being free is alive, alive to righteousness. That's the the opening word, that's the opening argument of Paul in this text about why it's impossible for Christians to live in sin. They are united to the crucified Savior, a Savior who frees them, a Savior who redeems them, a Savior who washes them clean. Oh yes, oh yes, even though we may roar at times in our sinful rage for which we must repent and acknowledge our sin, in Christ we are no longer lions. And we may dive into our sins. We may dive into our lusts at times. And sometimes for far too long But in Christ, we are no longer dolphins. And there may be that mischievous twinkle in our eyes when we're about to do something very wrong, but the truth is, in Christ, we are not a star. We are a child of the living God, and therefore, we live for Him. That's Paul's point as he carries on in verse 5 and following 5 to 11. He says, for, we have been, for if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. And we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul now connects the resurrection of Jesus 
with the death of Jesus. We are united to the crucified Savior, says Paul in his first point. We are also united to the resurrected Savior. The crucified Savior defeated, destroyed sin. The resurrected Savior is free from death, is free from the judgment of sin. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, and the life he lives, he lives to God. Now think of yourself, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself in the light of who Jesus is? In the light of the living, resurrected Savior? This is, in fact, sometimes the aspect of our faith that we do lose sight of. We hear the part about forgiveness and about the debt being paid, about the sacrifice on the cross, and we are comforted to know that our sins are forgiven, that we are freed from the guilt of sin. And then the devil whispers into our ears, isn't that wonderful? You're forgiven, but there's nothing you can do about it. You can't stop sinning. Oh, you're forgiven, and so it's okay. Keep living in sin, says the devil, because you're forgiven, because God has already forgiven you. You don't need to repent to the person that you did harm to. You've been forgiven. You don't need to change your ways and turn around your life. You've been forgiven. That's the lie that the serpent tells to us at times. He says the power of sin is too great. You can't stop being angry. You can't begin to be patient. You can't stop drinking or lusting or whatever it is that you struggle with. You can't do it because you are unable. That's an awful reality to have to live in if it were true. Because sin is cruel and its ways are selfish, deceitful, divisive, and painful. Why would we ever want to live under the cruel tyranny of such a master? That is, to be freed from the guilt of sin but not its power is no salvation at all. To put it another way, a crucified Savior is not enough of a Savior for anyone. He must rise again from the dead. He must live in the newness of life. New patterns of living, new patterns of thinking, new patterns of of walking. Just as we must live in the newness of life. When we are brought out of darkness and into the light, that doesn't mean the devil gives up on us and sin says to us, well, there's nothing we can do. These people have been united to Christ. We might as well give up. No, they increase their pressures and their temptations and they draw us into old ways of thinking and living. Indeed, the the old nature still sort of clings to us. The residue, the the reminder, like like comfort food, like old patterns of thinking we resort to, we fall back into sinful thoughts and actions. The process of sanctifying our lives, that is, of bringing them into the conformity with Christ, is a lifelong process that is filled with fits and starts. And it can seem at times as though sin has actually overcome, that it has got us in its clutches. And that's obviously what our enemies want to think, want us to think. And when we fall into sin, whether pride or greed, lust or laziness, anger or envy, our enemies don't want us to think there is anything we can do about it. 
It's just the way you are, they say. Be yourself, they say. Just live in a way that makes you happy. You need to be happy. How often don't we hear that? But I need to be happy. I'm in a relationship that is miserable. Why can't I be happy? I'm in a situation at work. I'm I'm in a situation at home where I'm not happy. Dad and mom won't let me do what I want. I'm not happy. Our world tells us to, to promote that, to build that up, to pursue that. Our world is more than happy to accommodate our spiritual enslavement. In fact, sin has this sneaky tendency to creep up on us so that by the time we realize we're living in sin, we don't think there's anything we can do about it anymore. It's like those moments where you tell a little white lie. A lie that's not so big a deal. It's not that big a problem to solve. But but then to avoid admitting that we told a little white lie, we have to tell a slightly larger lie and then a slightly larger one again in order to cover up the, first, the second one, and on and on it goes. And soon enough, we discover ourselves under a mountain of dishonesty, and now we realize we've been trapped, we've been captured by sin, and, and there's nothing we can do to admit that we were lying all along or to, is to admit this mountain of lies, to, to admit that we are a terrible person and, and to shame our name before those that we love. Something we don't want to do, something we won't do we don't need to do that we tell ourselves or think of it this way think of a same-sex attracted couple or even a married couple coming to hear the good news of the gospel and worshiping with us as a congregation desiring to be members of this place coming to realize therefore that they need to repudiate that they need to repent from and in fact cease living in their sinful lifestyle Do you imagine that such a couple would join our church? That they would be able to overcome such a mountain of pride? Do we really imagine that we can overcome such sin? And and we tell ourselves, we don't need to, we tell ourselves that we, we are forgiven anyway. Do we really think that the grace of God is enough to overcome the powerful and sinful desires of this life? Do we even think God wants that? Think of an addict and pick your poison, drugs, porn, gambling, alcohol. So much of life is destroyed by these things. After years of living in that sin, can't you imagine how impossible it seems to the addict that they'll ever be free? You'll never be free, says sin. Don't even try. Because that's what sin whispers in our ears. It feels like we can't overcome, that we can't be free, that we can't even try. And so why bother anyway? All our sins are forgiven. And for many, that's enough. They take the death of Christ, but leave the resurrection of our Lord. They worship a dead Savior, not a living one. But such a perspective fails to truly grasp the glorious truth of who God is. Yes, the payment for our sins has been made, but the power of sin has also been defeated. Christ lives, and the life He lives, He lives to God. He's no longer under the cruel oppression of sin, having to suffer the weight of His Father's wrath. He is free. 
free to serve his God, free to live in the joy of salvation, free to proclaim the wonder of God's grace. And in him we are free as well. And that's how we have to see ourselves. That's what Paul wants us to do. Consider yourself, see yourself, know that as a Christian you are dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. You are alive, says Paul. And living things can move and can grow and can develop and can serve and can praise. It is only slaves and those under the weight of the cruel oppression of sin who, can do, who cannot do these things. Those who are born under the cruel tyranny of sin can only live in the power of sin and can only walk on the pathways of sin. But those who are free need no longer walk on those pathways of destruction having shared in the death and resurrection of Jesus, they are alive. And if we claim to believe, if we claim to be redeemed, then we are claiming that we are alive in Jesus Christ. That resurrection power flows through us by the work of the Holy Spirit, and that power never leads us back into the pathways of sin, but forever and always into the pathways of righteousness. Which is such an enormous comfort for any and all who know the misery of sin's power. Whoever here knows the destructive consequences of cruel words through their temper, impatient acts uh, in their parenting, thoughtless and careless selfishness in their marriage, who think to themselves, there's nothing I can do to stop it. The resurrection of Jesus is the answer that He has In you He has overcome. You are to consider yourself alive to God in Christ Jesus. You're not left to the misery of your sin to slog against its impulses on your own. You are freed by the powerful working of Jesus Christ. As surely as He rose from the dead, you have been brought to new life in Him. And you are to see yourself that way. You are to think of yourself that way when sin comes against you and says, now, let's go down this path again, shall we? You say, I am free. Free to be alive in Jesus Christ. Not to go down this pathway of misery, but to walk in the ways of righteousness, the ways of love and life, the ways of praise and of service to God. And then you are to give yourself over to that. That's, that's how Paul ends this section. The first two sections are, are descriptions of the truth. He says this is who you are. You are united to Christ. He's not commanding us to do anything. He's telling us you are united to Christ, to the crucified Jesus. And you are united to the resurrected Jesus. These are truths. These are facts. This is who you are. Do you see who you are? You are these things. But because you are these things, therefore you must live this way. He goes from the imperative, or so the indicative, the description of what is, to the imperative, to the command of what must be. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been bought from death, brought rather from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Paul has told us the truth of who we are. He says, let me hold up the mirror uh, to show you who you are. Not the mirror of God's law, 
not the mirror of your condemnation. Let me hold up the mirror of God's grace and let me show you. What do you see? When you look in the mirror of God's grace, what do you see? A good person? No. A strong person? No. What you see when you look into the mirror of God's grace is Jesus. You see Jesus, the crucified, the resurrected Savior. You are in Him and He is in you. And seeing that, knowing that, remembering that, you are now to leave and live that way. It's not enough to know this truth, to be intellectually aware of it. The reality of our new identity in Christ will and must shape our living. We are to embrace the new way of living as an expression of our new identity. Indeed, It is so vital that we give expression to our new identity that failure to do so calls into question whether or not we're saved. That's the thing that we need to note here. As Paul shifts from the indicative, that is, what God has done in Christ, to the imperative, what it means for us, he's saying, live as you are. Sin is not your master. Therefore, don't march in His army. But give yourself to the living God who has redeemed you in Christ. That's what all Christians do, says Paul. That that is what all living saints do. They don't do it perfectly. They don't do it without failure. But they do it persistently. They do it progressively. We get better and better at it as we give ourselves over to it. But we are to give ourselves to living for the Lord in a Christ-like way. Now, to be honest, that's a bit of a challenge. It's not easy to, to, to work out this word from Paul in the verses 12 through 14, especially in the culture in which we live, a consumer culture, where we are trained to think, about what we get. That's what you go out into the world this week and you will be told constantly expect something. Expect to be blessed. Expect the government to take care of you. Expect businesses to satisfy your every need. Expect church on Sunday to be something that makes you feel good about yourself. On and on it goes. We live in a consumer culture. And here Paul says, give yourself to serving God. Give yourself to serving others. That's not a word that we like to hear. Be sacrificial, says Paul. Be a servant, says Paul. That's what being a Christian is certainly about. It's it's about being saved, to be sure. It's about going to heaven without question. It's about living with Christ in the newness of life on the new heavens and the new earth, ultimately. And sometimes we can We can leave things there. We can say to ourselves, well, in exchange for faith, I get to go to heaven, and that's the only thing that matters. Life is this grand waiting room until my number is called, and then I get to go to a better place. But that's not the gospel that Paul proclaims. Oh, yes, he he knows that those who are redeemed go to heaven and live with God in unbroken fellowship. Don't misunderstand. But he sees the gospel as life-altering, reality-defining, identity-creating, and truth-affirming. 
Oh, it says that we're sinners in need of a Savior, but it says that in that Savior, we have been united to a crucified and resurrected Lord. And since that's true, it is impossible, impossible for those united in Christ to live in the power of sin. Not just we really shouldn't do it. Not just wouldn't it be great if we didn't do it. Not, it's not nice when we don't live for the Lord. No, Paul says it's impossible. When God lays hold of a sinner and unites that sinner to Christ as baptism promises and signifies and seals, that sinner is alive and being alive offers themselves to living for the Lord. Living joyfully. Living thankfully because they are freed from that misery of sin. Because they're freed from the oppressive cruelty of sin. Picture sinners as a long chain of people or a long line of people chained all together with cruel taskmasters whipping them as they march to their doom. You really want to live in that family? You really want to be part of that group? But we have been redeemed. We have been delivered. We have been given freedom. We live in sunlit fields. We walk in the light of Christ. We live with joy and thanksgiving, a hope and a promise of eternity that fills our hearts with wonder and grace. And we celebrate by the power of the Holy Spirit the opportunity to live in gratitude to God. Redeemed in Christ, we are united to the crucified and resurrected Lord. Our old self has been defeated. Our new self has been brought to life. To not embrace this reality is to deny reality itself. To not live this way is to reject Jesus and the only hope of our salvation. So that our Christian living is so much more than just a good idea. It is life itself, a confession of who we are. So now review this past week. Maybe for some of us we need to review last night. Who were you last night? Were you a Christian, alive in Jesus Christ, rejoicing to celebrate His grace? Or were you fallen under the dominion of sin, the lies of the devil? Who are you? You say you're a Christian, but who are you? Are you defined by union with Christ, living a life of sacrificial service? Or have you fallen prey to the trap of the evil one? Believing that you can live in sin and be free to live in heaven. Paul wants us to know in the response of the gospel, the gospel of such grace and mercy, of free love in Jesus Christ. We who in response to that might might think, well, If I'm forgiven, I can can do anything I want. Shall we say that then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. For how can we who died to sin still live in it? May the Lord give us the grace 
to walk in this newness of life and to see ourselves as we are in Jesus Christ. Let's praise him together with, with him, rather, 536. Answering the call of Jesus. Jesus calls us o'er the tumult of our life's wild, restless sea. Day by day, his sweet voice sounded, saying, Christian, follow me. We're going to sing the stanzas 1, 3, and 5. We'll stand to sing 1, 3, and 5 of 536. <laughs>